0: Welcome to the inaugural episode of North Carolina Criminal Debrief. This is a podcast focusing on criminal law developments impacting North Carolina. My name is Phil Dixon. I'm the Defender Educator and a faculty member here at the UNC School of Government. These podcast episodes are going to focus primarily on state criminal case law and legislation, but we will also cover relevant federal decisions from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals and the United States Supreme Court, as well as any current events affecting criminal law or procedure. My hope here is that there's something for everyone, whether you're an experienced practitioner or simply a citizen interested in learning more about criminal law. If you enjoy what you hear, please like and subscribe to catch future episodes. Special thanks to Paul Bonner, our studio and IT wizard, for his technical support. Thanks, too, to Monica Yelverton, the associate director of programs and services for the public defense education team here at the school for all of her logistical help. Our intro music was composed by my brother David Dixon and he can be found at daviddixonmusic.com or uh, on Facebook or Instagram under David Dixon Music. Big thank you to David there as well. These podcasts are available free of charge to anyone interested in listening. However, as each episode is recorded they will be submitted to the North Carolina State Bar for continuing legal education credit. As those episodes are approved, they will become available on the online training section of the SOG Public Defense Education website. Uh, A link is provided to that part of the website in the podcast description or you could find it by simply googling UNC SOG Public Defense Education. Okay, today's episode is going to cover recent state criminal legislation and cases. We've got tons of legislative developments and lots of great cases to cover. Let's dive right in and start talking about them. First up, I really wanted to draw everyone's attention to the new general rule of practice, rule 28. The North Carolina Supreme Court adopted this rule back in December, 2021, and it went into effect January 1st, this year, 2022. The rule is entitled the equitable imposition of monetary obligations in criminal and infractions cases based on the defendant's ability to pay. And it basically says just that, that before any monetary obligations are imposed in a criminal or infraction case, the trial court should really make a, a determination of the defendant's ability to to pay and to only assess costs with that eye towards um, towards his ability and towards a sense of equity and fairness. Um, this can be done at the time of sentencing where the defendant can just ask for relief and make a case that he he or she lacks the ability to pay Um, or I think significantly this is going to allow folks who have already been under uh, existing criminal debt to go back into court after sentencing at a later proceeding and move the court for some relief. Uh, the rule requires the trial court to consider the ability and uh, the ability to pay and to conduct a hearing where necessary. Uh, it says the motion must be ruled upon before before the court imposes any of those obligations. A uh, couple of notes on this. Uh, it does only apply to criminal and infraction cases. I think this will primarily be... Um, important in, I think it will be most significant in district court and in traffic cases, but it is not limited to district court or traffic. Um, This rule is applicable even in serious felony cases. The one exception though is where the court lacks discretion on a fine. So think drug trafficking for instance, I think that's the big one uh, that most practitioners are familiar with where there's a mandatory fine. The court in a trafficking case lacks the discretion to reduce or eliminate that fine. So the rule doesn't apply in a situation like that. If the offense carries a mandatory fine, Rule 28 is inapplicable, but any place where the trial court has discretion, they can uh, offer some relief. There's a new AOC form to implement this rule. That is AOC form CR-415. If you just Google, AOC, CR415. The form will pull right up. Um, the front page, it looks a lot like a financial affidavit of indigency. It's basically a place where the defendant can uh, put down his situation. Uh, you know, Are you homeless? Are you employed? What assets do you have? What debts or liabilities do you have? Um, and then the defendant chooses a form of relief to be sought. Uh, the form contemplates asking for the maximum possible extent of relief permitted under the law. Um, just specific costs that might be waived or remitted, um, a delay uh, to have more time, or a payment plan. All of those the defendant can ask for. Uh, They sign that form seeking the relief they've uh, picked on the form. Sign it uh, in the presence of a notary or other official, uh, sign it under the penalty of perjury, and the form has to be, a copy has to be served on the DA. Um, As practitioners know, that just means dropping off a copy at the front desk of the DA's office or mailing it to them by certified mail. Uh, And the form then is filed with the clerk. Once that happens I think the idea is that a hearing will be set and the defendant can make his or her case to the judge that money should be remitted. Uh, The second page is where the, the court can order relief and it's effectively set up so that the trial court does not have to make extensive findings. There's sort of A catch-all box that says, you know, findings of good cause in support, Uh, I find good cause in support of this waiver and I agree to remit X, uh, whatever the fee is. We have a webinar coming slowly but surely out on this topic that will go into much more detail, Um, but this is something significant for especially defense practitioners and trial judges. Uh, I believe it's likely you're gonna see a lot of these petitions soon. Um, We've seen recently where the Division of Motor Vehicles settled with a class action set of plaintiffs over uh, their notice and how they notify people of their their license being suspended and they've agreed to send out mass notices to lots of people who are suspended for failure to pay um, alerting them to this process. So as that as that trickles out that notice gets out and as more practitioners become aware of this um, We're going to likely see, I think, you know, a lot of these remission requests and and requests for some relief. Um, You can uh, check out the forthcoming webinar there, but we basically look at it in terms of you've got your standard court costs and fees, your fines, your restitution money. Um, And one point I would make is that I think defense practitioners have traditionally um, asked for a civil judgment. You ask for the money to be converted into a civil judgment at sentencing, uh, this allows the defendant to walk out of court without having to pay that day and without being under, um, without that as a condition of supervision that they have to pay. But the civil judgment is not really relief. So to the extent practitioners have been using the request to, you know, convert any money obligations into civil judgment, I encourage folks to stop doing that uh, and instead look to Rule 28 and the statutes and try to get actual relief, try to have these costs either not imposed in the first place or waived or reduced. Again, look out for our webinar on that, but that is Rule 28 and the new AOC Form CR-415. We've also seen amendments to raise the age. Um, for most offenses and, uh, and uh, juveniles accused of an act of delinquency, now the minimum age of juvenile jurisdiction is going to be 10 years old. Uh, I remember as a young attorney getting a common law robbery case involving some seven-year-old defendants. Uh, that will not happen anymore. So for most, most of the time, it's gonna be 10 years old to get into juvenile court. There is an exception for eight and nine year olds when they're charged with an A through G felony or if they've previously been adjudicated delinquent. We've also seen reverse transfers. Reverse transfers authorized. Um, Formerly, under seven B twenty two hundred point five, if the person, if the juvenile was sixteen years or older and charged with an A through G felony, it was a mandatory shall transfer. The case has to go to adult court and be tried in superior court as an adult. This new amendment to that statute provides discretion to the prosecutor to not do so if they like. any time before adjudication, even if a transfer has already been accomplished, the parties can agree to send it back to juvenile court. So some significant developments there. Moving on to some new crimes, we've had the legislature pass a plethora of criminal law changes this year. Uh, I think one of the more significant ones is the new felony offense of resist, delay, obstruct. Uh, you know, often known as resisting arrest, but <clears throat> that's traditionally been a misdemeanor offense. We now have a class I felony where the defendant causes any serious injury to an officer by resisting, delaying, or obstructing them in the course of their official duties. If it is serious bodily injury, the offense becomes elevated to a class F felony. For better or worse, I think this likely works in tandem with our existing protections for officers in this realm so that a person may well be charged and convicted of a felony resist along with assault on an officer and potentially malicious conduct by a prisoner where, where applicable. Um, relatedly, we've seen a new breaking and entering and larceny offenses dealing with law enforcement. There's a new Class H felony for breaking and entering, breaking or entering, excuse me, of a law enforcement vehicle, and a new larceny of law enforcement equipment from a law enforcement vehicle. Um, Those are both Class H's. The larceny does have an enhancement for when the property stolen from the law enforcement vehicle is valued over $1,000. In that case, it becomes a Class G felony. We also saw the Larceny of Motor Vehicle Parts Statute, that's uh, GS17-72.8, amended to specifically uh, speak to theft of catalytic converters. Uh, So theft of catalytic converters is now a class I felony. Uh, This stuff has been in the news left and right for ages. I recently saw a story in North Carolina where someone was stealing a catalytic converter, attempting to, and they had jacked up a vehicle and the jack failed fell on them and crushed them. So I think it's a, a dangerous thing to be engaged in and certainly very disruptive if your catalytic converter is stolen. Um, so now we have a class I felony for um, stealing those, those, uh, that equipment. Uh, interestingly the law here creates a presumption that a theft has occurred if someone possesses one of these removed from a car unless they are a dealer, a mechanic, Uh, who has lawful possession or if you have documentation that it's a replacement for a vehicle registered to your name. Um, The law generally disfavors those kinds of presumptions Uh, that may be something that could be challenged but my advice on a practical level is don't be walking around with a catalytic converter unless it's for your car and you have a receipt and some documentation uh, because it it is presumed stolen property and it is a felony offense. Uh, moving on to drugs, we saw the fentanyl fix also occur. Something I had written about a while back was that fentanyl and, and an analog of the substance, carfentanyl, uh, both remained Schedule II substances. And uh, just, you know, while cocaine, methamphetamine, PCP are all Schedule II substances that are felonies in any amount, uh, they had not been, fentanyl and carfentanyl had not been added to that list. And so by default, uh, schedule 2 is generally a misdemeanor offense. That's been changed, so fentanyl has now been added to that list of, with PCP, cocaine, amphetamine, methamphetamine. So any amount of fentanyl or carfentanil is now charged as a felony. Um, that was that did cause some confusion for a while, but there, uh, as of December first, there is no more misdemeanor possession of fentanyl. Uh, but Keep in mind, for offenses prior to December 1st, that still that possibility still exists. So it depends on the date of offense, but for the older crimes, there may still be a fentanyl misdemeanor. Moving forward, it's gonna be a felony. Uh, as I wrote when I, when I blogged about that uh, possession of fentanyl some time ago, <clears throat> given how small the doses are, uh, I think you know, even if you have a case under the old law where it's ostensibly a misdemeanor, Uh, Depending on how much weight there is and what other evidence is in the case, it may still be possible to obtain an indictment for possession with intent to sell or deliver. And of course at the four gram mark you get to trafficking. But uh, I think a a very common sense fix there. Uh, Moving on, we also have a new satellite based monitoring scheme. Uh, there's a legislative finding that this, has, that this program is efficient uh, and we've seen recent cases from the North Carolina Supreme Court basically agreeing, saying that you know, the state has met its burden of showing that the system works. Um, that said, we've now completely revamped it. Um, at bottom, no one's going to be on satellite-based monitoring for more than 10 years. Uh, folks may remember there's just been litigation for years over this, but in a case called Grady 3, um, our, court founds, our courts found that the SBM program was unconstitutional as applied to unsupervised recidivists. And pe- these are people with multiple reportable convictions. Since then Grady 3 has not been extended to other categories such as sexually violent offenders or the people convicted of aggravated offenses. Um, but the state had really had a hard time meeting its burden and for the longest time, as long as there was an objection, uh, some kind of constitutional argument raised by the defense, uh, defendants were mostly avoiding SBM, uh, at least on appeal. Now uh, as I said, the um, several significant changes have happened. First of all, we've gotten rid of the recidivist category. Now it's re-offender and re-offender is more narrowly defined to, only only uh, only relates to felony reportable convictions. So the person who has a misdemeanor sexual battery conviction, then later is convicted of felony decent liberties, they are not considered a re-offender. Only if they had multiple separate reportable convictions uh, for felonies would they fall into the category of someone requiring SBM. Um, Furthermore, there has to be a risk assessment now, um, and that risk assessment has to determine that the person requires the highest level of supervision and monitoring. If so, um, the court will order SBM. Certain folks, uh, if you are a sexually violent predator, if you're convicted of an aggravated offense, or if you've committed statutory rape, uh, you will be on SBM for 10 years if Uh, those are, if you fall into one of those categories and your assessment comes back at the highest level. Uh, Otherwise, uh, everyone else, which is basically people convicted of offenses involving the physical, mental, or sexual abuse of a minor, it is up to 10 years. So could be 10 years, could be one year, could be anything in the middle. Uh, There's also a new way to get off this stuff or attempt to get off this stuff. Um, Before... Under the former law, you had to go to the parole commission and ask that they terminate you from the SBM program early. Uh, as far as I know, that they never did that for a single offender. That has shifted now so that it is the judge who hears that petition. And the law says you can be terminated after five years if you no longer require that highest level of supervision. And if you're denied, you can refile every two years. Um, so uh, that's um, that's a much more that's a much more lenient scheme than you know the sort of previous automatic life SBM that we had for most offenders. Uh, this process of termination seems a lot more sensible in that we get to make our case to a judge. Um, and overall, I, I tend to think that this will be found constitutional. Um, again, you know, there's been years of litigation over the SBM program that's mostly, uh, the, that the state is mostly lost, and this is this revamping is really an effort, I think, to draw, draft a constitutional scheme. Um, given the recent cases out of the North Carolina Supreme Court, I know Hilton was one, and I believe Studwick maybe was the other, th- they've, they've really indicated um, there's, there seems to be a strong indication that they think this program works and that I, this more narrow program I think is likely to pass muster. Uh, I'm not going to get too far into it here but there have also been extensive extensive changes to these uh, expunction statutes. We've seen automatic expunctions roll out um, with, without, not without some um, messiness and There's also very new and complex rules on expunging convictions. Uh, I would encourage anybody that's interested in that to go to the North Carolina Criminal Law blog and see John Rubin's writing on that that piece. Uh, He's written it up in excruciating detail and um, that would probably be a podcast to itself. There's a lot more legislation out there as well that will be relevant to criminal practitioners. I wanna get to some cases, but I would encourage everybody to, again, go to the criminal law blog and read the wonderful legislative summaries prepared by one of our newer faculty members, Brittany Williams. Um, Turning to some criminal case law, let's start out with um, some stops and searches. And the first case I wanna talk about is State v. Jonas. Uh, this is a case to us uh, comes coming to us from Cabarrus County and here are the facts. It was around 10 o'clock at night, an officer was out on patrol and he sees a car with three people inside pulling out of a parking lot of a trucking company's business. Uh, the lot is otherwise empty, the gate is down, there's only one light on in the parking lot and it appears closed, the business. The law enforcement officer sees this and thinks it's suspicious so he begins following the car and he notices they have a transporter license plate and uh, it says TP followed by a number and that's a specific type of, of license plate that DMV can, can authorize. Uh, the officer was not familiar with, with transporter plates on a, on a regular car. Uh, he had not seen that before and wasn't sure if it was legitimate. So he runs the tag and the tag apparently comes back as not assigned to any vehicle. Um, Now, it wasn't revoked, it wasn't canceled, it wasn't otherwise invalid, just this not assigned. And I had actually not heard of this, but uh, I've spoken to some law enforcement officers since. They tell me this this isn't a thing, it it can be assigned to a vehicle. Um, So in any event, the officer stops the car believing that he's got reasonable suspicion for fictitious tax. A canine quickly arrives, performs a, a sniff, and there's a positive alert. Uh, they find 0.1, <clears throat> a tenth of a gram of methamphetamine in a backpack in the trunk. The defendant's then charged with felony possession of methamphetamine. He moves to suppress. Uh, trial court denies the motion, finding, well there, there had been a recent trailer theft in the area, uh, this tag came back not assigned, and you know, given the other circumstances, this closed business after hours, the trial court thought that was reasonable suspicion. Uh, So, the defendant pleads guilty as charged and appeals. Now, as an initial matter for my um, appellate, any appellate attorneys or defenders, the state argued on appeal, first of all, that he didn't preserve his right to appeal the denial denial of the motion to suppress. Um, That there was no, normally, when you plead guilty pursuant to a plea bargain, there has to be explicit notice given to the prosecutor and state. I usually encourage folks to say it in open court, that we're pleading guilty, but preserving our right to appeal, and to put it into the plea transcript explicitly, that this this guilty plea is conditioned on our right to appeal the denial of the motion to suppress. The defendant here didn't do that. But the Court of Appeals said, those rules only apply where there's a plea agreement, and the defendant here pled straight up, no agreement. Uh, In those circumstances, he retains his right to appeal, there's no notice required. Now, I don't want defenders getting sloppy with this. I think best practice is always give that notice, uh, always put it in the plea transcript to make sure, but an interesting little preservation point, if there's not a plea agreement and you're pleading straight up, no advance notice is required to, to appeal that denial of the motion. So jumping back into the, the reasonable suspicion analysis, the Court, the court of Appeals, uh, they took a good hard look at this transporter statute um, it's transporter plate statute, and it's uh, GS 20-79.2. There's about 10 different ways to qualify for one of these plates, and they can be used for, you, you can get one uh, for lots of different purposes. Uh, if you're trying to repossess a car that you have a lien on, this is an appropriate use of a transporter plate. If you're moving the car as a part of a car dealer or other business, that's an appropriate use. If you're taking a car to auction, if you're road testing, moving in- inventory, uh, taking it to a trade show or parade. Uh, so there's lots of ways to get one of these plates, lots of reasons they can be legitimately used and they absolutely can go on a car. The The law enforcement officer was wrong to think that they didn't belong on a car. So where does that leave us? Well the state argued, what about, this is a reasonable mistake of law. You know, we have the Heinen versus North Carolina case from the US Supreme Court Uh, holding that a reasonable, good-faith mistake of law can provide reasonable suspicion even when it's wrong. If it was reasonable, that mistake of law could still supply reasonable suspicion. Um, And in Heinen, it was the brake light statute, right? Our brake light statute was ambiguous. It said you have to have a rear lamp. Uh, The officer pulled the person in Heinen thinking they only have one. I think they need two. Uh, Turns out our statute didn't explicitly require two and that made it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court where they ultimately said this was reasonable. The statute was vague and ambiguous and it was reasonable for the officer to think two back rear lights were required even though the statute wasn't wasn't exactly clear. Um, Here though, the Court of Appeals declined to apply the mistake of law. Um, doctrine and said this was not a reasonable mistake. The statute is clear, it's really not debatable, these plates do go on cars. So if we take that out of the equation what we're left with is you have a car leaving a closed business and a quote-unquote recent trailer theft in the area. There was no information about how recent it was or how close it was, Uh, so that recent theft also didn't count for much. Now these could be factors, certainly um, a high crime area can be a factor, but those two things on their own, uh, leaving a closed business at night and a recent theft in the area, that just is not enough. There was no traffic violations observed by the officer and therefore no reason to suspect the defendant of any wrongdoing. An unreasonable mistake of law according to the court and the motions to suppress should have been granted. So the trial court was reversed, the conviction was vacated, and that's that. Turning to another mistake of law case, we had U.S. v. Coleman out of the Fourth Circuit recently. Now, of course, Fourth Circuit cases are not binding in North Carolina, but they are informative and I think persuasive, uh, and I only teach them when I think they would likely hold up in North Carolina courts. Um, So, interesting set of facts here. The school day is getting started up at a local high school in Virginia. And school authorities notice a man sleeping in his car in the parking lot. The car is running and he is halfway parked in a space, halfway hanging out, uh, almost blocking a lane of travel. And a crossbow, like a hunting crossbow, can be seen sitting out in his back seat. Uh, The school resource officer is alerted and responds. As he pulls in behind the defendant, the defendant apparently wakes up and uh, begins Attempting to drive away, so the officer performs a proper stop Um, The man does stop and he he right away says, you know, what about this crossbow? Do you have any other weapons in the car and the defendant admits? Yes, I also have a gun, so He's asked to step outside and as he opens the door the officer notices what's apparently a bag of marijuana uh, inside the car door. The defendant additionally looks tired and the officer suspected him of impairment. Uh, This all eventually leads to a search of the car and they find scales, baggies, some methamphetamine, and a gun along with that crossbow. Uh, So federal indictments are issued against this man for Mr. Coleman for gun and drug offenses. And something more uh, clearly was going on here. I don't know if Mr. Coleman was already a part of a Federal best investigation, or if this arrest uh, led to the led to an investigation, but 28 people end up uh, federally indicted as a part of this investigation into drug trafficking. Um, so I thought that was just an interesting little bit of trivia here. So anyways, the defendant files a motion to suppress, and a you know, large part of his argument is that Virginia law, there's a statute similar to the one we have in North Carolina that bans possession of a weapon on educational property. And like ours, several weapons are listed, uh, but a crossbow is not one of the weapons listed in the statute. So the defendant argued, you know, it's not illegal for me to have a crossbow park, in, it, it's not illegal for me to have a crossbow on school grounds under, under our law. And the trial court denied that. It it said, we think this was reasonable suspicion all day. um, And even if it was a mistake, this was a reasonable mistake of law under Heinen. Uh, The defendant is convicted and appeals. He's sentenced to actually 211 months. And on appeal, a unanimous Fourth Circuit affirms. They said, we'll take you, we'll we'll bite on this argument. Let's, Let's assume the crossbow isn't illegal. Let's put that completely to the side you still had reasonable suspicion of several offenses. Um, It is also a crime to trespass on school grounds, and the officer was entitled to investigate this man for that. Uh, The man was clearly parked illegally, and the officer was entitled to investigate potential illegal parking. And these circumstances, you know, sleeping in a running car and uh, as a strange person in a high school parking lot as the school day starting—that's that, getting pretty close to reasonable suspicion for impaired driving as well. well so and they also said location, location matters here, uh, and schools, I think, are are different. Uh, Schools—it's just going to be a little more a little more leeway given to officers in the context of a a school. And, and the court, I thought, I thought this was interesting, the court <clears throat> pointed out, you know, remember, uh, the conduct l- leading to reasonable suspicion, it need not be illegal itself. So it kind of doesn't matter whether, whether the crossbow was legal or not. Uh, it, it, the, the essence of Terry is really, you know, is the officer reasonably suspicious? And recall in Terry v. Ohio, the case where we get the reasonable suspicion standard from, the conduct at issue there was, was two men walking back and forth in front of a store window and peering inside. And the officer and Terry observed this for a few minutes and began to think, I think these men are casing the store for a potential robbery. And ultimately confronted them, patted them down, discovered guns, and they were charged. Uh, the same here. Uh, of course a school resource officer can investigate a strange man at a school, definitely when he has a crossbow. Uh, They don't have to wait for something awful to happen, the court said. Uh, So reasonable suspicion here, even without the crossbow. And the court went on to say, you know, alternatively, that crossbow alone also would have been enough. Because any mistake of law there about whether it was legal or not on a a high school campus, uh, that was was reasonable suspicion all day. And if, if it was a mistake of law, that was a reasonable one. This case reminded me of another Fourth Circuit case, Walker v. Donahoe, that we covered a little bit last year. Um, And I just think it it reinforces that idea that that schools are a little bit different, and the reasonable suspicion calculus might be a little bit different around schools. Um, The basic facts in Walker were, it was a week after the Parkland school shooting tragedy in Florida, and uh, this man was walking near a school campus, dressed in military fatigues, carrying an AR-15 openly uh, just walking down the street Uh, and callers understandably reported that and were were concerned that he may be a potential shooter. Uh, It it was in an open carry state and when the defendant was stopped, the officers just briefly detained him. They verified that he was old enough to have the gun and that he wasn't a felon and when they determined that, all in the course of about nine or ten minutes, Uh, They released him and gave him his weapon back. The defendant, uh, well, excuse me, Mr. Walker in that case sued uh, civilly saying this was a Fourth Amendment violation. The police didn't have cause to, to detain me even for that brief time. Uh, the court rejected that argument and said, "You know, this is reasonable suspicion all day. Uh, given these circumstances, the, the recent school shooting, uh, this guy, this man's attire, uh, the the fact he's carrying an AR-15, which is a little bit more unusual of a weapon to be carrying openly, um, this was this was totally reasonable." Um, and these two cases, I think, also illustrate um, a, a Second Amendment concern, right? It's like, you, you may have the Second Amendment right to possess these weapons or even to carry them around, but the Fourth Amendment does provide this limitation on it that says, you know, depending on the circumstances, police are probably going to be able to, uh, be able to investigate you and your weapon. Um, and when that's on or near school property, I think the burden on police to demonstrate RS is gonna be that much easier. Uh, so a couple of interesting, uh, a couple of interesting mistake of law cases, and um, some you know implications for uh, weapons, weapons rights. Moving on, uh, we have a couple of interesting standing cases. All right, State v. Lane was one recently released from our court of appeals. Here we had a GPS device that was installed on a car pursuant to a court order. Now follow me if you can, a lady owns this car but she allows another man to regularly drive it. He has full possession and use of that car and that man was the target of this drug investigation. He was suspected of moving heroin from New York to North Carolina. The defendant, Mr. Lane, he was not the target and he was not somebody who had any right to this car but he was basically hired by the man to drive the car. So those two men, um, Mr. Lane is driving, the person who normally possesses and uses the car um, is the passenger. They drive up, they pick up heroin in New York, Um, they're tracked the whole time, and as soon as they get back into North Carolina, they're pulled, everyone gets charged with trafficking heroin. So the defendant files a motion to suppress, saying this tracker, tracker evidence shouldn't come in, I think there was no probable cause, and the the state argued, and the trial court agreed that Mr. Lane, you don't have any standing to contest this search. You're not the owner and you're not the person who's normally in possession. Uh, you don't have any right to exclude others, uh, no other property interest in the car. you know had had the man who normally has possession wanted to, he could have kicked you out of the car anytime you want well that's not that's not a sufficient reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, it's certainly not any kind of trespass to your property interests. Uh, I, I think this is a, a little a little strange in that the passengers normally do have standing, and that's under U.S. Supreme Court case Brindlin v. California. Um, but you know, here there was really this—he's um, basically in a commer- almost a commercial transaction. He's he's a hired driver. Uh, so the Court of Appeals affirmed; they thought no standing. Um, great job by the state in arguing standing and pressing that issue. Uh, I do think this lane is probably cabined to its specific set of facts. Uh, again, privacy uh, passengers can normally assert privacy interests, um, but here you sort of had a weird commercial, uh, commercial-like arrangement. Um, and there is a different rule in the Fourth Circuit, uh, so there are some splits of authority going around on this, and we might see more development. Uh, jumping back to the Fourth Circuit, another interesting standing case dealt with someone who was recently an occupant of the car but was not an actual occupant at the time of the stopper search. So um, police followed a car from a club uh, suspecting, you know, it wasn't clear to me why they were following it, but I think there was either a gun or drug investigation going on. The defendant, Mr. Smith, in this case, uh, was a was the front seat passenger and the car pulled into a gas station and once they parked, uh, Mr. Smith got out of the car went into the store and was milling around and while that, while he was inside the store police converged upon the car in the parking lot uh, stopped it and eventually searched it. Um, Now, Mr. Smith was very close by, but not inside. And when police entered the store, Mr. Smith acted very deceptive. He pretended not to notice the commotion in the parking lot. Um, He acted like he was buying stuff even though he didn't have any money um, and tried to disassociate himself from the car. Uh, He lied about it when he was directly asked. Partly he argued, well, my cell phone was in the car. You know, that's enough of a tie, right? The court said, no, you take that risk. If you leave your personal property in someone else's car, that other person may consent to a search or police may have grounds to search it and you've given up any any expectation of privacy in that when you leave it in someone else's car and leave the scene. It would be a different result, again, if he was actually present because of that Brendlin v. California 2007 Supreme Court case. Passengers in a car stop-off police are seized and may challenge the stop or search. But not so here, uh, and certainly not when you factor in his deceptive behavior. You can't have it both ways. You can't pretend to have nothing to do with this car. You're not present at the time, but then later claim some privacy interest in it. So no standing here either. Uh, denial of the motion to suppress uh, affirmed. So I really cover these cases because I think they are just important reminders of the standing doctrine. Uh, it's not going to be an issue in every case uh, or even, I think, you know many cases. Uh, but this is that basic initial step in the Fourth Amendment analysis. Does the defendant even have a right to complain? Does he have standing? Um, and where it's debatable, I think defenders especially, you should anticipate this argument from the state and you should try to marshal the evidence that shows yes, your person does have some sort of possessory interest in the property at issue, whether it's a car, or cell phone, or whatever else. Okay, let's turn to some crimes. Um, Out of Onslow County, we get um, another chapter in the never-ending litigation over sweepstakes, video machines, Uh, this is GIF surplus LLC. Um, Under GS14-306.4, it's a crime to operate certain electronic gaming machines. Um, This is the third time the case has been to the high court, and the company basically keeps changing their game to get around our ban on electronic gaming, and the North Carolina Supreme Court keeps striking it down. I will say I, I didn't realize the penalties for this were quite so serious, it's a class one, It's only a class 1 misdemeanor to uh, violate the electronic gaming ban the first time. Uh, but a second offense is treated as a class H felony and a third or subsequent offense is treated as a class G felony. It occurs to me this is a little bit like our hemp and marijuana situation in the state right now, where I have seen uh, it really vary place to place in terms of how aggressive law enforcement is about these machines. Um, but it does seem that in light of this decision, gift surplus uh, from the state Supreme Court recently, uh, I know those machines have been removed from our local convenience stores here in um Orange County, but it it did take a little extra time uh, past the mandate that that they issued in this case. Um, So yeah, really varied enforcement, it seems to me. Uh, If if it's not being enforced, I'd be interested hearing it. Uh, But this all goes back to some really old case law back in 1915. Um, The court in the 1915 case noted, you know, as soon as you ban one of these games, uh, gambling or whatever the game, games of chance, people are gonna try to amend the rules and they're gonna change the nature of the game slightly and try to avoid the game. And we're not gonna play those sort of nitpicky games with it. Uh, We're gonna look to the substance of the game, not the form. It doesn't matter what you call it, it matters how the game is actually played. And where a game is predominantly a game of chance, and not one of skill, it falls within our prohibition. And that's the predominant factor test. You look at the predominant factor. And here, um, this, the, the original game involved basically spinning a wheel, much like a slot machine, and players could nudge one symbol into place, up or down. Uh, the company claimed that was the skill at play, and they lost that argument. Uh, this time they had modified the game a little bit more to include some nominal, um, nominal monetary prizes for, for more winners um, and you could nudge two symbols now. Well, that still wasn't enough um, for the court. They said this is still... The, the trial court had found the new version lawful. The, the court of appeals had reversed, but they divided on all different grounds as far as why, why the trial court should be reversed. North Carolina Supreme Court comes in and affirms, uh, strike down all these games as illegal sweepstakes, Uh, they note that the Court of Appeals erred in its analysis by not just applying the predominant factor chance, but they looked at it, Uh, they said this is de minimis skill, it's really chance, not skill, Um, nudging the symbols, it's still pretty much a slot slot machine. All right, so uh, that is uh, gift surplus LLC. On to state v. due. Uh, this was a North Carolina Supreme Court opinion. Uh, we have covered it in some recent courses so you might be familiar with it. Um, but we had some clarity and due about when multiple assaults are properly charged. There had been some confusion here. Um, two different tests were being applied. My colleague Brittany Williams blogged about this some time back. Uh, both the Court of Appeals and State Supreme Court decisions I believe. Uh, but there's been this Traditionally, there's been one way of looking at multiple assaults, uh, the dis- distinct interruption test. Was there some distinct interruption between one assault and the next? Uh, but sometimes courts would apply the Rambert test from a case called Stavey Rambert, um, and that looked at whether the defendant employed separate thought processes, whether the assaults were distinct in time, and whether there was different injuries. Really, you, you can find opinions where courts apply one and courts apply another to assaults but Rambert was actually a case about discharging weapon into occupied property, not assault. Um, So there had been some confusion about that and I I don't know that there's much daylight between these two tests, uh, but I I could see in a close case, um, application of Rambert factors might give you a different result than the distinct interruption test. So that's sort of the legal problem that was looming out there. In due, this is a Carteret County case, Um, the defendant and his girlfriend, and I think a child, were staying at the girlfriend's beach trailer and the defendant got mad at his girlfriend when he saw her dancing with a cousin. Um, And when she came home uh, from a neighboring trailer, he hit her in the head, uh, punched her with his fists for over two hours, uh, head butted her, bit her, strangled her, and kicked her. Um, eventually the assault ends. He tells her we're leaving. Um, he makes her clean up the blood and, and change the bed sheets and they get into the car and start driving home. During the car ride home he again starts hitting her in the head strangling her. Uh, he makes her take off her seatbelt and threatens to push her out of the car um, and says he'll kill her and her child if, if you know, she tells anyone about this stuff. Uh, the woman's sister sees her the next day and immediately calls the authorities. And the defendant's charged with a couple of counts of assaulting a female: one for the kicking her in the head, one for headbutting her, an assault by strangulation, and assault with deadly weapon, inflicting serious injury. Now the jury acquitted on the strangulation count and one of the assault on females, but he is convicted of assault on female and the, the felony assault, inflicting serious injury. Um, and he said, this was really just one assault on appeal. Uh, you know, I shouldn't have been convicted of two. Um, they're not, it's not separate assaults for each blow I land during a fight. And, and he's got a point there. You know, if we engage in, in an fray or fight of some kind, uh, generally speaking, the fact that we've punched each other a bunch of times, that's still just one assault. Um, and, and the court agreed with him there. Like, right, it's not the number of blows and it's not the number of injuries. Uh, and so, you know, going back to the Rambert Rambert factors, different injuries was one of the factors there. And they said, no, Rambert is inapplicable. That was a case about discharging weapons. Again. Here it's the distinct interruption test. So the Supreme Court has finally clarified that's how we look at this stuff. And here you, that was met. You know, there was an assault in the trailer, and then there was a distinct interruption where there was cleaning packing, getting in the car, and a new assault began uh, on the road. They were in different locations, so I think that is a um, piece of clarity in this area that we didn't have before. Uh, Distinct interruption is required to convict on multiple assaults. If it's all one part of a transaction, you still have the ability to elevate it depending on how serious the injuries are or whether deadly weapons were used, but if where you want multiple counts, there has to be some interruption or, or distinction between those two things. Um, look at whether there was an intervening event, inter- intervening event. Uh, if there was any lapse of time where no, you know a reasonable person would calm down, or any change in location. Those are some of the factors. Uh, or you know, or anything the court said, anything that that really constitutes a distinct interruption. Relatedly, we've got uh, State v. Applewhite dealing with human trafficking and multiple charges. Um, This was a Cumberland County case. The defendant was recruiting adult women into prostitution and advertising them on things like Craigslist. Um, They were all poor, heroin-dependent women, and the defendant would basically give them food, drugs, shelter, and transportation, but the defendant and his wife kept all the prostitution proceeds. And when the defendant was unhappy with these women, he would literally lock them up in a basement or a hotel room, he'd withhold food, drugs, or the ability to speak with their family, and he drove them all over the state and out of the state to prostitute multiple women, multiple different times. So he's charged with human trafficking, promoting prostitution, kidnapping, multiple counts of habitual felon, and conspiracy. For a pro se defendant at trial, he did pretty good. Um, He actually, um, he actually beat several counts, um, but is convicted of human trafficking. Uh, Two counts for one victim, two counts as to another victim, three counts as to a third victim. well, excuse me. I believe that was those were his charges. He had, you know, two as to one victim, two counts human trafficking as to another, three as to a third, five as to two more. Uh, he beat several of those, but is still ends up convicted of several multiple counts of human trafficking as to individual victims. With the convictions and the habitual felon, he received a sentence from the trial court, uh, consecutively consecutive sentences totaling. Uh, a minimum of 2,880 months. That's a minimum 240 year sentence. Uh, on appeal his argument was I shouldn't have been convicted of multiple counts as to individual victims. Um, this is a continuing offense. You know, the human trafficking is over when it's, when it's completely over but each time I move these women around does not constitute an individual uh, count itself. It's, it's only over when they're released safely, much like kidnapping. And the statute is 14-43.11. And there's a provision in subsection C that says, each violation of this statute is a separate offense and it doesn't merge with any other. And the statute bans recruiting, enticing, harboring, transporting a, a victim for purposes of holding an involuntary servitude, and here, here, sexual servitude. Um, you had a divided court here. The majority said, the statute's clear, the intention is to punish, punish, punish each act uh, separately. Uh, we affirm, no problem. Judge Arrowwood dissented and said, I don't think so. The statute does not define the unit of prosecution and the rule of lenity requires that we strictly interpret these criminal statutes against the state and here it's silent and I think we should treat it as a continuing offense. And he noted, you know, doing this doesn't change much for the defendant, he's still gonna die in prison. Uh, If we gave him one each as to each victim, it would still be a minimum 160 year sentence. But there's no guidance here about when one begins, one ends and a new one begins. Uh, if it was, you know, two as to one victim, why not 12? Why not 30? And the state did argue that. At the trial court, it said, we've been generous in our charging decision. We could have brought hundreds of counts, you know, one for each time the person was enticed or transported or recruited or harbored, and we've settled on this. But to Judge airwood and I think sensibly so, that, that kind of reeks of arbitrariness where, you know, so the state has discretion to bring one as to a victim or a hundred counts as to a victim. Um, So this issue will be before the Supreme Court. Uh, Look out for State v. Applewhite and we'll get a little more clarity then on whether this is um, you know one offense, a continuing offense or uh, something that can be stacked and stacked and stacked. Uh, For now the law is that each act is a separate offense under Applewhite. Moving on to another Supreme Court case, State v. Tucker. Um, This was an interesting case from Mecklenburg County about DVPO violations, domestic violence protective order violations. Um, Basically, the defendant assaulted his girlfriend, she got an ex parte DVPO, and the defendant was served by the sheriff while he was in custody, The, the the ex parte order was read to him. Uh, and he got a notice of hearing um, that said, "Hey, we're holding a hearing on the issue of a more permanent order. Uh, the hearing we're going to decide the issue of whether a longer DVPO should be entered." And the defendant didn't show up at the didn't show at the permanent hearing. So a year long order is entered. It's mailed to the defendant at jail, but lo and behold, the defendant is no longer in jail. He had been released. The very next day after that hearing on the permanent DVPO the defendant goes to girlfriend's house, he breaks in, he threatens her with a a knife. Now law enforcement responds and is able to catch him in the house and prevent any serious violence uh, and take him into custody. And he's charged with um, several offenses, a felony DVPO violation for uh, violating while possessing a deadly weapon, assault with a deadly weapon, assault on female, felony breaking or entering with intent to commit a felony DVPO violation inside, along with habitual felon. The jury convicts on everything. The court gives him consecutive terms. It's over 100 months. And at the Court of Appeals, uh, he gets some significant relief. The uh, Court of Appeals vacated the, the felony DVPO violation and the felony breaking or entering but based on insufficient evidence that the defendant knew about the, the um permanent DVPO, that he didn't willfully violate it because he didn't have notice that that existed yet. And because those were the only felonies at issue, those were the only things supporting the habitual felon, all of that is undone, he just goes, it goes back down on only misdemeanor assault on female and misdemeanor assault with a deadly weapon. The Supreme Court quickly reversed that. There was evidence captured on the officer's body cam Uh, during the encounter in the girlfriend's home that she said out loud, you know, this is why I got the DVPO order, because of behavior like this by the defendant. And the defendant responded on camera, yeah, I know, I know. And uh, later she said, I got a restraining order and the defendant responded, yeah, I know. Now to the court of appeals, that was not enough. They said he could have been referring to the first DVPO, uh, but it was expired at the time. So we don't think it was a willful violation. You know, a DVPO violation does require that it be willful. Uh, but the Supreme Court pointed out that can be proved by circumstantial evidence. You know, yes, he wasn't necessarily served with his permanent order and he wasn't at the hearing, uh, but these comments that he made, you know, viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the state, uh, this was some evidence that he had knowledge of the order. So, Court of Appeals is reversed. All those felonies, including the habitual felon, are reinstated and the original sentence handed down by the trial court stands. So really interesting, I think this caused a lot of waves and was kind of surprising to people when the Court of Appeals decision came out. Um, but I would note for everyone's sake that you know it does still have to be willful and here there was that, that minimal evidence, at least, of the defendant's knowledge. But I think it remains an issue um, where the defendant is not served with the order has not been served with it and is not present at the hearing, and if there's not any other evidence that the defendant knew about it, that's gonna, that remains a defense, that there was no willful violation uh, because defendant didn't have knowledge. So keep that in mind, uh, I think on different facts that might have been a winning argument for the defendant. Okay, uh, a biggie, and something that we've been just seeing a ton of movement on is uh, First Amendment issues in criminal cases, Um, State v. Taylor is um, I think has a significant potential to uh, impact jurisprudence across a a series of crimes here. This is a Macon County case where the defendant made some um, rather threatening social media posts. Uh, He was upset that the DA had not charged some parents in a recent child death case and he posted some things like, it's time for some mountain justice. Death to you if things don't improve. I hope the DA sees this. And if law enforcement comes for me, they better be armed and ready. Now, he takes down these posts from his Facebook pretty much right away the same day. But one of his friends on Facebook was a deputy. The deputy saw it and screenshotted it and calls the SBI. The defendant is charged with threatening court officials. At trial, um, he asked for dismissal based on the fact that the court... The state had not showed that a true threat had occurred, that he had not made a true threat within the meaning of the First Amendment. The trial court denied that. Then he asked, well, I at least want the jury instructed on the First Amendment principles here. Denied. So he's convicted, uh, goes up to the Court of Appeals where they reverse, uh, said this was not a true threat. It goes up to the state Supreme Court, and they said, well, some of that might have been a true threat. That was really up to the jury. They could have concluded some of this was a true threat within the meaning of the First Amendment. But either way, it was error not to instruct the jury on the true threats doctrine. And that means the person subjectively meant a real threat to do harm. So if I am intending to convey a real threat. And objectively, a hearer, a listener hearing my threat A reasonable person would hear that and take it as a real and actual threat. Now, this case dealt with threatening court officials, but it almost certainly applies to any threats statute. Uh, So there's a way to commit stalking by threats, uh, communicating threats, Uh, There's a statute on threatening language on the phone, uh, cyber-stalking by threat, blackmail by threat, threatening jurors, intimidating witnesses by threats, uh, maybe even extortion. I think uh, all of those cases, uh, all of those offenses, it may be arguable that you have got and are entitled to some First Amendment instructions here. A true threat is one of the categories of unprotected speech and that's the standard, that there's a subjective intent to threat and it would objectively be understood as one. Uh, it's a pretty high bar. This is a really long and detailed opinion. Uh, if you're a First Amendment nerd or you just wanna take a deep dive into this stuff, I encourage you to check it out. But we're already seeing it in play. We've subsequently, uh, really in between the Court of Appeals decision in Taylor and the Supreme Court decision, the Court of Appeals decided another case Uh, juvenile matter, Ray ZP from Iredell and it applied Taylor to the threat of mass violence at schools statute. Um, You know the child had made a couple of comments, uh, you know, I'm gonna blow up the school and alternatively threatening another student. He was charged with mass violence on educational property and communicating threats. Uh, and they said, you know, the threat to blow up the school was not a real threat, that, that, was, that was just object, uh, subjectively not meant as such, no one objectively took it as such, so it was improper to convict him of the uh, mass violence on educational property, that probably should have been dismissed for failure to provide sufficient evidence of a true threat. The communicating threats though to the student there was a, there was testimony it was a, a vile threat and the student there was testimony from the the threatened student that that they took it quite seriously. And to the court of appeals in in Ray ZP that was enough. But even that you know, routine communicating threat statute, the way it's written now, it has that objective prong that a reasonable hearer would consider it a threat. But I don't believe it really has that subjective intent requirement that the, the speaker intended it as a threat. So that needs to be read in, uh, that needs to be argued under this Supreme Court uh, case Taylor. And where you're in a jury trial, those jury instructions have to be instructed, uh, have to be requested and, and given. Um, The other biggie I wanted to cover, and I think we'll probably conclude with this one, is uh, yet another Supreme Court case, State v. McLymore. This comes to us from Cumberland County. This dealt with uh, an altercation between the defendant is working for a sales company. He's in the car with his supervisor, in his supervisor's car. The supervisor's driving. The defendant's the front seat passenger. And according to the defendant, they get into an argument and the, the supervisor, driver, punches the defendant in the head a couple of times. And the defendant says, feared for my life, uh, so I pulled out my gun, I shot him twice, it killed him. Interestingly, he then pushes the, defend, the victim's body out of the driver's seat, hops in the driver's seat, flees, and is pursued by police for over an hour, and eventually caught. When, he's, when he is apprehended, he's charged with murder one, robbery with a dangerous weapon, and fleeing to elude. And he has some previous convictions for robbery, assault, and larceny of a firearm. There's some 404B evidence that he had just been involved in another robbery and shooting about 20 days earlier. But all that aside, he testified at trial, the defendant, and claimed perfect self-defense. I was absolutely terrified for my life. I didn't have any duty to retreat. Um, So the jury should be instructed on this. And now remember, just a brief review of those statutes under 1451.2, Uh, There's a right to defend your habitation, and that includes your workplace, home, or vehicle. If anyone's committing an unlawful, forcible entry into those places, you are presumed to act reasonably uh, to repel them with deadly force. That presumption can be overcome, but it's a strong presumption. Then we have 14-51.3, which is your more general defense of person statute, and that's what the defendant here was relying on. Uh, It's colloquially known as stand your ground. Uh, Basically that you know, where it's necessary to uh, prevent reasonable, uh, sorry, where it's necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm, uh, if you reasonably believe it's necessary to defend yourself, you can do so. And that's, that would be, you know, a complete defense where those circumstances are met. But we also have this disqualification provision, that's in 14-51.4, uh, it says you lose the right to self-defense under certain circumstances. Um, Tracking with the common law, if you're the initial aggressor, you generally lose the right to self-defense. There are some narrow exceptions for withdrawal there, um, but the one the the other prong is when you're committing a felony and that's the prong I want to focus on. That's really what this case is about. So 14-51.4 in part says no right to self-defense if you're committing a felony, attempting a felony, or escaping from the commission of a felony. And we had a case earlier from the Court of Appeals back in 2018, State v. Crump, that interpreted that provision. Uh, And the defendant in Crump argued, that can't be right, that would be way too broad uh, if it's truly read strictly. There should be some requirement that there's some relationship between the felony that me, the defendant, is committing and the need for defensive force. And if there's, you know, there should be some causal connection. The court and Crump disagreed and said, "Nope. It means what it says. any felony will disqualify you. And that is that is a harsh result if you stop and think about it. So I mean, if I, you know under the logic of Crump, if I happen to be possessing um, a personal amount of cocaine, you know, that is a felony uh, possession of cocaine. And if I'm walking down the sidewalk one night and for reasons completely unrelated to me possessing cocaine, I'm you know, mugged by a group of robbers under a strict reading of the felony disqualification, I don't have the right to defend myself. So that was part of the challenge here was that, the, well, let me back up. The defendant asked for perfect self-defense instructions under the statutes. And the court agreed, said, I'll give, the, um, I'll, give you, I'll give the jury the instruction on self-defense, but I'm also gonna read them the disqualification provision. And I think the only place the trial court messed up here was it read the disqualification and said, if you find the defendant is committing the felony of firearm by felon, uh, you can find that he lost the right to self-defense. Well, the defendant was not charged with that offense and that offense had not come up yet in that trial. Uh, even though he, he was a felon, there was evidence that he was a felon, but firing by felon was not at issue in the case. So, you know, on appeal, um, he makes two arguments. He said, and he, he made this to the trial court, too. He said, one, even if I, I don't think this felony disqualification applies, you know, you need to overrule Crump. That was wrong. Uh, we should require a causal nexus between the, the conduct and the, the, the need for force. But even if I am disqualified, you know, the statute didn't overrule the common law and I have a you know, coexisting common law right to self perfect self-defense alongside the statute 1451.3. And it's true. In 1451.2, the defense of habitation statute, there's a section that says we don't intend this to overrule the common law. In 51.3, the defense of persons, it's silent. It doesn't say it one way or the other. So those were the two questions for the Supreme Court. Here is, you know, has the common law been abrogated for situations that we'd see in fifty-one point three, which I think is most of your self-defense situations that aren't covered by defense of habitation, and uh, was Crump correctly decided? You know, does, does is a causal nexus required? The court granted discretionary review. This was an unpublished case at the Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court takes it on discretionary review and says yes. The trial court here was correct to use the statutory language, including that disqualifier, because there is no more common law right to self-defense. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's the language of our statute really tracks what the common law used to say, and this is an unmistakable intent by the legislature to overrule the common law in these situations. So if there's any Perfect, uh, to the extent you're claiming statutory perfect self-defense, that's the only way to claim it uh, in, in a defense of others, a defensive person's situation. No more common law perfect self-defense. And Crump was wrong. Uh, there has to be a direct causal connection between the felony being committed and the need for defensive or- force, and the state has the burden to show that. So where this is an issue, where they want the jury instructed on felony disqualification, uh, the state needs to show there's some relationship between the felony conduct that the defendant's committing and the you know need for the force, uh, which I think is makes makes much more sense, right? If I'm committing an armed robbery. And I'm forced to defend myself in the course of the armed robbery. I think, as a matter of policy, we don't want that person to be allowed to defend themselves. Where I'm committing a nonviolent drug possession crime, uh, it's really completely unrelated to my need to use force, like in the mugging example I gave earlier. It makes sense that that person would be able to, to still defend themselves. Uh, a couple of thoughts here, though. Uh, one, you know, you do still have common law imperfect self-defense. So. This is where the defendant has used, had a right to defend themselves but used excessive force, or they were the initial aggressor but lacked murderous intent, they still may be entitled to common law imperfect self-defense. And that gets it down from murder one to voluntary manslaughter. So it's not a complete defense, but a huge mitigator. Um, and so even where statutory defense self-defense doesn't apply, or it applies, but the defendant's potentially disqualified, uh, your next best thing might be common law imperfect. Second, you know, it's, we know it's reversible error for the trial court to instruct on aggressor doctrine, uh, the defendant being the first initial aggressor in a self-defense case when there's no evidence of that. It's improper to start getting into aggressor doctrine where the defendant wasn't the aggressor, there's no evidence that the defendant was acting aggressively. I think it's likely that the same rule applies here. Um, where you don't read the felony disqualification and don't instruct the jury on that unless there's some evidence that the defendant was engaged in a felony that was directly uh, causally related to the need for his defensive force. Finally, I would just note this may be more complicated than it sounds. Uh, I don't know how hard or fast we're gonna interpret that direct causal connection. So I think the easy examples are the one I gave. Uh, I'm committing an armed robbery, or a sexual assault, or kidnapping, some sort of violent offense, uh, and a need to defend myself arises during the course of that violent act. Of course, that person's not entitled to rely on self-defense. Um, and where somebody's committing a non-violent offense and there's absolutely no connection to the need for defensive force, it's clear that person can still claim self-defense. But I think there might be a lot of cases on the margins. Like what what do we do if I'm a drug dealer sitting at home on my pile of drugs and a group of robbers comes to rob my house uh, knowing that I'm selling drugs? Is that act of selling drugs a direct causal connection uh, to my need to defend myself? I, I would tend to think not. You know, I think the way this is intended to work most sensibly is that the people robbing me are the ones who are disqualified from claiming defensive force because it's their act of robbery that's creating the need for force. Um, but y- you may see arguments there and I can think of other, other examples where it's just not going to be as clean. Uh, so a real biggie development in self-defense. Um, we may cover some of these again at the summer webinar, but I was just too excited about some of these developments, and I wanted to try putting in this new format. So please email me, uh, let us know if you like this format, if you want to see more of it. I'm at Dixon at sog.unc.edu. That's D-I-X-O-N. Uh, and uh, if, if folks like this, we will we will continue it up and do some more. Thanks, everybody.